This is a Soulfire production. Well, we're back again. We got some good stuff to talk about today. It's it's nice when there's a bit of a slow news week because we get to get to get into some things that aren't really news, which is fun. It's people doing fake news. We get to talk about a little fake news today with Brian Stelter attacking Fox News and Tucker Carlson. Good stuff there. We're going to actually get into the Bachelor and Chris Harrison debacle. That was by popular request on Instagram, so we're going to do a little bit of that. That's not something I thought I was going to get into, but it actually, um, it's a bit personal. It's a bit personal, and we'll get more into that later. And we're going to talk about Biden's first tax hike in almost 30 years. So the first tax hike we've seen in almost 30 30 years since the Clinton era so we'll go through that a little bit. Just just talk about it. Just feel it out. But in the meantime, uh, we got a few things popping up that are fake news, um, like Meghan Markle running for president in 2024, which is just a way to capitalize on her being in vogue right now, uh, and is just completely ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. Not worth an iota of your energy. And uh, the Bill Burr outrage at the Grammys when he was re- uh, presenting the Latino, Latina, Latinx awards uh, and not able to pronounce the names and talked about how feminists uh, would be upset that he's a cis white male um, presenting Latino awards, which it was odd. I will say it was an odd choice for him to be the person to do that. Um, seemed pretty disorganized. Didn't even know the Grammys were on. And I'll be honest with you. I haven't really paid attention to the Grammys since um, a star is born was going on and Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga were making sweet love on the stage and just melting my heart while they did it. But interesting stuff. People try to cancel Bill Burr. It's so funny. It's so funny. That guy is incredible. He's incredible. And he's been so fun. I saw him live one time on a couple of, of a couple of grams of mushrooms and man actually had one of the most interesting moments of unity with a black man. At that show. And the reason was, this is where I think we, this is, I think this is kind of the foundation of my philosophy that true equity is us all being able to make fun of each other um, in good faith without it being a problem. And uh, Bill Burr's wife is black and she's super fucking funny. She's almost funnier than he is, honestly. When she was on his podcast every now and then, I would, it was, it was amazing. But, anyways, I'm at this Bill Burr show and I'm on some mushrooms and we're having a great time. I'm in the front row, okay? This is a, I'd, the full story is I was actually breaking up with my girlfriend <laughs> at that moment. And one of my friends hit me up and was like, Hey, somebody backed out of this con or this uh, comedy show. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, I want to go. So I was like, Hey, uh, we need to finish this later. You can go cry or do whatever you need to do. Uh, I'm going to go to the, the Bill Burr show. So we're in the front row. We're having a great time. And I'm sitting next to this dude, this black guy. And we're like, we, we didn't talk or know each other. I was kind of distracted because I was on, on mushrooms and Bill Burr starts making fun of, of, of black stereotypes and people from Texas, dudes from Texas specifically. And it was one of these moments where I could kind of zoom out thanks to the mushrooms and be sitting with this guy next to him and just laughing at each other hysterically. 
right? Because we just both fit the fucking stereotype as a dude from Texas and a black guy that he was just going off on. And the way that Bill Burr's comedy is, it seems very off the cuff, but of course it's very polished and, and incredible. So it, it was just this moment of us like looking at each other in the, in the eyes and laughing at one another, not with one another as well, but really laughing at ourselves and laughing at one another when I was like, oh, that was good. That was funny. That, that was a really interesting moment of unity. And I think that's what anti-racism should be. I actually think that's what anti-racism is. It's just been co-opted by a bunch of grifters that want to get paid. But that was a powerful moment for me. It really was. I was like, this is, that was good. That was necessary. That was needed. Because we need, all need to get laughed at. You know, I was ripping at some Christians today on, uh, on Instagram and these people just take themselves so seriously sometimes. That's why it's fun to make fun of them. And, you know, it's, we just gotta, we gotta be able to laugh at each other. We've got to. We cannot take this shit too seriously. It, it, that is, that is the problem. And while we're taking shit that doesn't matter seriously, China is taking shit that does matter seriously. And that is why we don't need to get in a trade war with China. We don't need to get in a hot war with China. We don't need to do anything aside from protect ourselves from China and get our shit together, because as Bill Maher says, we are a silly people. And Chinese people are as serious as a heart attack. So we look at the silly things that we spend energy and capital on in this country, and then you look over there, right, at our, at our nemesis, apparently, and they're focused. They're focused, and they got a long-term plan, and they are on track. And they show that there's, there's, there's power in a blend of capitalism and authoritarianism. And that's why I think that in the next 20 years, China will be the global leader. This is the downfall and the unraveling of America. Will it be a bad thing? I think America would be better off with a little bit less leverage, to be honest with you. You know, when you see countries, countries that are more free, like we are, or close to it in different ways, like Australia and... A lot of places in the UK, like they don't have the same constitution, they don't have the same rights, but um, they don't get involved in global policing. And I would kind of, I don't know, but I don't also don't want China involved in global policing as well, even though they're doing that on their on their side of the globe. So it's a really interesting thing, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. But this that blend of capitalism and authoritarianism is proven to be incredibly potent. And I don't know if we can really combat that with what we have in the United States. I don't even know if we should. But it's an interesting thing. And we're a silly-ass people. We, we are goofy as fuck. Like, the things that we care about are silly. So silly. And there are a few things that are of value that we care about, but those are the exception. Instead, of we're renaming libraries, uh, taking down statues, uh, yelling about transgender bathrooms. Um, you know, this is what we're spending our time and energy doing. And you only have so many fucks to give. And if you think about that, I used to talk about that a lot when I was a life coach back in the day, is like you only have so many fucks to give, right? And as a nation, we're giving our fucks to the wrong things. Like we're putting our fucks in the wrong place and we're running out of fucks, right? We run out of fucks to give. By the time you've gotten through all the social issues and you actually get to policy, like there's not a lot of fucks left to give. So you got to be really mindful about where your fucks go. Maybe keep a fuck calculator around. You know, you got to do a fuck audit every now and then. Just really get yourself centered around where are your fucks going? What do you give a fuck about? That's why on this show we don't talk about things that are 
not fuck worthy. That's why I like to say, you know, you don't really need to watch the news. I give you all the news you need to know about. And that's what we do here. So now with that being said, if you are interested in getting more of this delightful show, the best place to do that is over at the Politically Homeless Patreon. There are two tiers to choose from, one for $6, one for $15. You're going to be involved in a crowdsourced episode just for the Patreon community, sourced from Patreon, for the Patreon. It's a great way to support the show. My goal is to get that thing to 100 members, okay? Right now, we're at 48, I believe, which is a good group of people. I mean, we got a solid crew in there. We're having really fun discussions. But at the end of the day, I know there's a lot of you out there that are listening right now that are not involved in the Patreon, and you probably have thoughts, and you probably have questions, and you probably have topics that I don't bring up on the show that you would like to hear me bring up on the show. And that's what the Patreon community is for. Check it out. It is patreon.com slash politically homeless. There is a link to it in the show notes of this show. You can literally sign up while you're listening right now. You don't have to stop listening to the show at all. If anything, you should be signing up while you're listening to reaffirm that you're doing the right thing, that you are doing the right thing. Joining the politically homeless Patreon is a way to show your political homelessness. And when we would drop that merch store, which is coming up fast, we are working on some badass merch, turning this motherfucker into a lifestyle brand. Got some amazing apparel coming up. You're going to get discount codes and early access. I promised you that. It's going to be great. And that is at the Patreon community. Now, if you decide to join the deep state, and if you're already in the deep state and you're listening to this right now, you're going to get a special gift. Because I promised you more. I promised you more. And you were going to get it as soon as that stuff is done. And I'm excited about it. I'm stoked for it. But you know what I'm excited about right now? Getting into the state of things. Let's do this. It's time. All right, so Biden is planning his first major tax hike and the first tax hike in 30 years, or almost 30 years. Now, he's going to need 10 Republicans to sign on to this bill to get it through. They don't do like budget, budget, budget reconciliation or something like that. We'll pull up this article here from The Hill and look at what we got going on. So President Biden is reportedly planning the first major hike in federal taxes in almost 30 years to fund the economic program set to follow the recently approved $1.9 trillion pandemic stimulus package. Unidentified sources told Bloomberg that the increase will reflect the promises Biden made during his 2020 campaign. The planned increase reportedly includes raising the corporate tax from 21 to 28 percent, increasing the income tax rate on people making more than $400,000, expanding the estate tax, pairing back tax preferences on pass-through business such as limited liability companies, and setting up a higher capital gains tax for individuals making at least $1 million. The Hill has reached out for the White House comment, blah, 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 blah. As Bloomberg notes, an independent analyst of the Biden campaign's tax plan conducted that the tax policy found that it would raise around $2.1 trillion over 10 years. All right, so it's going to be repealing the 2017 tax cuts from Trump. Um, yeah, and we've got some people that are in the way here. I don't see them getting 10 Republicans to do this, but I wanted to go over it anyways and just see what we're looking at here. So when we look at exactly what's in this, the raising the corporate tax, uh, pairing back preferences, 
for so-called pass-through businesses, yada, 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 raising income tax rates on individuals earning more than 400000 expanding the estate taxes reach, and capital gains tax reform on people making more than $1 million. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. And, and they did. There was a big push from the left to, say, tax the rich. And I understand that. But they're also putting things in here that are going to incentivize companies or kind of force companies into not taking uh, their money or their employment outside of the United States. And I don't think you do that by disincentivizing them to do so. And I look at this and I think, are there other ways we can do this? I don't think increasing the corporate tax to 28% is um, necessarily the best move. I think there's other ways that we could go about doing something like that, like closing tax loopholes is a great way of going about doing it versus instituting more tax with the same loopholes that are going to have the same way for people to escape paying those taxes. I think the capital gains tax uh, reform probably makes sense because that is such a great way to hide money from taxes. And I totally understand that a lot of people uh, do that, need that. It's a pretty normal thing to do. But maybe at the end of the day, if you're making over a million dollars a year, uh, there's a limit to how much you should hide from taxes because you're already getting a ton of deductions and, and write-offs anyways. And the estate tax, yeah, okay, I get that. That makes sense um, in a way. But when we look at this, I, I always like to think, is there is there a better way we can do this um, by creating more incentive for business and rewarding businesses for good behavior, right? I think that's one of the best things we can do uh, with taxes in a lot of ways is rewarding companies for paying $15 minimum wage, right? And then having big kind of tax credits uh, or refunds for people who, small businesses that are paying $15 minimum wage or paying uh, or increasing wages, right? Or offering upward mobility. I don't know how you would assess that, but when I think about the way this all plays out, I would love to see small businesses be taxed very little. And I think there needs to be, especially after the COVID pandemic, a, a real bias towards small business. And that's why I was kind of against the $15 minimum wage because the impact on small businesses. Now, if you work for some place like Walmart or Amazon, which Amazon already has their $15 minimum wage, but if you work for some place like Walmart uh, that in some places offers a $7.25 minimum wage, and that's really hard work, um, well, that's, that's kind of fucked, right? So... There's a way to raise that, raise those wages and force those companies that are what I consider parasitic companies, right? They move into small towns, they suck wealth out of those towns, and they don't give that much back. In that situation, I think there's like there's a regulation uh, role there in 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 forcing those companies to pay a higher wage, a living wage, depending on what that wage is for that community, for that area. And I think there's a way to also incentivize companies that are smaller in paying that wage and usually doing so by tax tax credits or tax loopholes, right? So when we get in this situation, I'm so focused on trickle-up economics, if you will, right? Like we've had this Reagan era, trickle-down economics. If you give tax cuts to the rich, it trickles down. That just does not work, right? That is just, that's, that's antithetical to human nature. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it sounds good and it can be articulated well, but it just doesn't make sense. But at the same time, raising corporate taxes to 28% does not incentivize companies to stay here. Now, if you offer some kind of environmental credits or, or, or living wage credits, something like that, that's that that could make sense if there if there's big deductions for that that incentivizes companies to stay here but everything we've done to try to bring back manufacturing jobs and do this other shit it just hasn't worked 
Like none of it has worked. If you want to talk about Bush or Clinton or Reagan, like it just does not work. Even Trump did the same thing. He he required um, car manufacturers to only buy parts from companies that were offering a $15 minimum wage. Well, that's great, but most of those companies were in Mexico, and now all that Mexico has to do is now increase their price uh, or their minimum their wages for their employees to $15 instead of moving their plant to uh, the United States and then doing the same thing. Because in Mexico, you can get a great worker for $15 an hour, where in the U.S., uh, you can't. So there wasn't a lot there that actually brought jobs back to the United States. And we've got to get really innovative in the way that we're thinking about doing this. Because if you're seeing places like Massachusetts, right, where you have a hub in Boston, but the rest of the state is just dilapidated because there's just this huge gap in 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 productivity, availability of work, uh, wages, all of these things. There's just this massive gap, and we've got to do something about that because that what that does is bring forward ideas of desperation, and ideas of desperation are communism or advanced socialism, right? Not democratic socialism, Bernie Sanders type stuff that relied on capitalism to exist, but something that completely circumvents that reality. And when we look at this, there's got to be a better way, I think. I mean, I don't think that just giving the government more money at the end of the day is the right move because what are they going to do with it? Continue to be wildly inefficient. So if you can pair closing tax loopholes and creating jobs with decreasing or, or maintaining the current tax revenue, yeah, then we've got something there. Or closing loopholes to increase tax revenue and offering massive tax cuts to the actual middle class. Right? Maybe you don't pay any federal income taxes if you make less than $75,000 a year. You know, we've got to think about things like that and, and use that as a way to keep money in the hands of people that have to actually spend more money to have less money. Like being poor is not cheap. So when we look at this whole thing, what can we do? Like, what can we do that is not just doing the same thing at a greater level, right? We just keep doing it. Well, we just need to increase taxes more or increase taxes more. And that just isn't really doing the job. It's not doing the job by any stretch of the imagination. So there's a way to think about this. We could look at libertarians like Peter Schiff. Or we can look at, I don't know, anybody else. We could look at Bernie Sanders' plans. But at the end of the day, we've got to get money in the hands of the people that need it. And we've got to do create jobs because with jobs we end up solving a lot of the problems that the government is inept at solving. And providing upward mobility and the possibility for upward mobility within our communities, within our populace, is the way to do it. So I always like to ask myself the question, can it be solved with creating jobs? And if so, how do we do that? I think taxes should be a last resort. But at the end of the day, there was a campaign promise to tax higher earners and keep them from being able to dodge out and paying their fair share, which I am very much in favor of. That being said, when it comes to corporate tax and things like that, Maybe there's a way to decrease those taxes. Maybe there's a way to incentivize companies to stay in the United States. And I just don't see raising the corporate tax as one of those things. So this is a mixed bill for me. We'll see how it goes. We'll see. It's going to be debated heavily. And you're going to see this thing get shredded because they're going to need Republican support that they're very much not going to get with it as it is. So I'm hoping that this is the starting place for a negotiation. And we will see where it goes. All right, well, we've got a little, uh, little bit of crybaby journalism for you here. Brian Stelter is back at it. The uh, political pundit from CNN and wannabe Mr. Potato Head uh, has, some, has some more things to cry about. So we're just going to get into this. It's 10 and a half minutes long. Maybe we don't play the whole thing. We'll just see what the gist of it is. Let's check this out. 
I have come to one inescapable conclusion about the GOP and the media. I want to see if you agree or disagree with me. Even though Republicans are out of power right now, the use of the media, their use of the media, has a major impact on the Democrats and on political dysfunction. So this, what I'm about to say, directly impacts President Biden and his administration. All right. Are you ready for it? We're ready. Here's my conclusion. Tucker Carlson is the new Donald Trump. Tucker has taken Trump's place as a right-wing leader, as an outrage generator, as a fire starter. And it's all happening on Fox, just like Trump's campaign did. Which means Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch are ultimately responsible. I mean, think about all the ways these two men are similar. Every day, Carlson is throwing bombs, making online memes, offending millions of people, also delighting millions of others, tapping into white male. So if you're if you're um, if you're speaking what you believe to be true, there's really no way that you're not going to upset some people, right? Like divisiveness is the product of honesty a lot of times, or maybe not divisiveness, but polarization oftentimes is the product of honesty. Now, not that Tucker Carlson's always acting in good faith. I don't want to give him that much credit, but if you are being honest, you will upset people. And other people will love it. That's just kind of the that, that, that's the product of it. So that's really a, a, a false equivalency there that he's projected onto Tucker. But let's hear what else he has to say. Tapping into white male rage and white resentment. Rage. We have to go uh, racial Stoking with it, of uh, distrust of big tech in the media. Generally coarsening the... How about the motherfuckers on CNN who are like um, stoking white male privilege or white male self-righteousness? Is that not... Is that not equally as as damaging? Because it hides behind virtue, um, which is arguably much, much worse and harder to suss out because you get to pretend and believe that you are just and right. But at the same time, you're being a condescending prick. Just a thought. Discourse, never apologizing for anything and setting the GOP's agenda. Sounds like a recently retired president, right? Even before the 2020 election, there was informed speculation about Carlson as a 2024 candidate. Of course, some of Carlson's detractors say, he's just a troll. He's just really good at ticking people off. But isn't that what they said about Trump for years? He's a troll that has way better ratings than you do, you egg-headed fuck. Yes, Tucker is known to critique Trump and the Republican Party from time to time. From time this to time, time last year, he was at Mar-a-Lago trying to convince Trump to take COVID more seriously. But Tucker tells the same conspiratorial us versus them story that Trump told. The same, they're out to get... Conspiracy theories and conspiratorial talk like Russiagate, for example. Or how about that recent Trump tape that turned out to be complete fucking bullshit that you guys ran non-fucking-stop for weeks. For weeks. This is, this is the level of hypocrisy here is astonishing. Get you story that Trump told for years. It's the paranoid style in American politics all over again. And Tucker now soaks up some of the same social media fury that Trump did. He stokes the same same debates that Trump did. And it raises the same predicament that Trump raised five or six years ago. Whether and how to cover his claims. I mean, here's just some of what Tucker did in a single week this past week. He said pregnant service members are a mockery to the U.S. military and claimed the U.S. has a national masculinity crisis. And when military officials rebuked his comment... The U.S. does have a national masculinity crisis. He flipped out and doubled down. 
Tucker also spent an entire segment berating a New York Times reporter because she had the audacity to call out online harassment. And then oh, he- she had the audacity? Taylor Lorenz had the audacity to call out online harassment? Are you fucking joking? That broad was inside of Clubhouse trying to catch people saying retard. Oh, she, he said a potty word. I mean, cancel him online. She's a tattletale journalist and a fucking joke. You want to sit here and she, if you critique her and call her a joke, like I now I'm considered her. Is this considered a harassment? What I'm doing right now to Taylor Renz is considered harassment by telling her that she is shitty at her job and that she does not belong in journalism because what she does is not journalism. She's a fucking hall monitor. She is nothing. She is a gossip columnist. Jesus fucking Christ. He blasted the Times for defending her. He tried to rewrite history about George Floyd's death and said American leaders used Floyd to enshrine, quote, open racism in nearly all of our institutions. And he mocked Meghan Markle and he defended Piers Morgan, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on and on. And it all is because of these. So he disagreed with you. So he disagrees with you. So therefore he is evil. Really? The fact that I have to come onto this show and defend Tucker Carlson, of all people, is obnoxious but when these fucking assholes are so arrogant and self-righteous it drives me insane jesus his individuals on screen what tucker wants is attention what rupert murdoch and lachlan murdoch want for him is attention as this headline put it tucker is the post trump maga champion Firmly supplanting Sean Hannity at this point as the number one star on Fox News with ratings far ahead of anyone else on Fox. Or CNN or MSNBC. And by the way, other shows re-air his comments all day long. Fox News is increasingly the Tucker Carlson channel. And the Murdochs recently cut a deal with Tucker (laughs) to expand his profile on Fox's streaming service too. It's ultimately all about the Murdochs and what they want. How they're going to keep the profits flowing by giving the viewers more and more radicalized content, led by Tucker Carlson. So what does this tell us about the state of the right-wing media? And what- All right, that's enough. That's enough from this fucking douchebag. Okay, now let's go check out some stats, some facts, not some conjecture or some opinion or somebody being butthurt. Let's look at exactly what's going on here. So if we pull this up, primetime cable news weekly change in total audience. Now this data shows an average uh, total of- audience watching shows from March 1st to 5th, 2021, compared to the average November 30th to December 4th, 2020 totals. Um, Total audience for CNN tonight, whatever, whatever. Okay, cool. So CNN tonight with Don Lemon, uh, down 32.5%. Anderson Cooper on CNN, down 32%. Cuomo Primetime, down 28%. All In with Chris Hayes, down, that's on MSNBC, down 16.7%. The Ingram Angle on Fox News is down 9.2%. MSNBC with Lawrence O'Donnell, down 17.6%. Hannity, down 11.9%. Tucker Carlson is down 4.8%. And Rachel Maddow is down 9.1%. Now, if we look at some other information here, let's look at some advertising revenue. Um, the advertising revenue is very similar. So all in with Chris Hayes is down 29%. Uh, last word with Lawrence O'Donnell, MSNBC is t- down 27.7%. Uh, Don Lemon down 28.6%. Ingram Engel down 13.6%. Anderson Cooper down 32.9%. Uh, Cuomo Primetime down 313 Hannity is down 171 Rachel Maddow down 177 And Tucker Carlson tonight 
down 2.3. So if we look at his ad revenue is down 2.3%, which makes sense after an election cycle. And then we look at his ratings are only down 4.8% when the next closest is Rachel Maddow down 9.1%. And the next one after that being the atrocious Laura Ingram on the Ingram angle going down 9.2%. What do you think this is really about? Now let's look at some other information here as well. Um, we look at this. So Fox's average primetime viewership jumped from 1.8 million to 2.48 million during the 2016 election. Uh, CNN went from 73,000 to 1.3 million and MSNBC saw a staggering 87% increase from 596,000 viewers on average to 1.1 million. Now that's when Trump came on the scene in 2015. Then in 2020, another election year, Fox jumped from 3.62 million, jumped to, excuse me, jumped to 3.6 million viewers in prime time. MSNBC went to 2.15 million and CNN gained nearly 800,000 viewers to 1.79 million. So what we're seeing here is a trend, okay? We're seeing a trend in which these liberal media outlets, MSNBC and CNN, who have done really well. Dear, thanks to Trump. He was, he was, the Trump bump was real. Everything was an existential threat. Everything. And they had a solid villain. They didn't really care what they were saying about him was true in the same way that Fox News during the Obama administration didn't really care if what they had to say was substantive. They just knew that it got ratings. It got ratings. Having a villain, creating a villain has gotten ratings. Now, if you follow Matt Taibbi and if you've read Hate, Inc., a fantastic book, you soon realize that their addiction to Trump was what got him elected. And these motherfuckers on MSNBC and CNN don't have an iota of self-reflection to look back and understand that they gave that asshole millions and millions of dollars of free press because they wanted to make a joke of him for ratings. And now that he's gone, their ratings are in the shit and the cash has quit flowing. So what do they do? What do they do? They go make another villain. They're doing the same thing with Tucker Carlson, but what these assholes don't understand is that everyone hates them. Everyone hates them, and very few people trust them. That's why very few people tune in. And even when people do tune in, they listen to everything they have to say with a grain of salt because they've proven themselves to be incredibly dishonest. And that is coming back to bite them in the ass. So now they're going to do the same thing to Tucker, right? Tucker isn't the new Trump to everyone else. Tucker, Tucker is the new Trump to CNN and MSNBC. Because if they can find a villain, maybe they can continually talk about everything he does as if he is the next existential threat to the United States of America. And maybe, maybe, maybe cash in on some of those ratings that they'd gotten used to hosting a fucking reality show for the last four years. And this, this people like this, people like Brian Stelter are the reason that people think liberals are pussies because Brian Stelter is a pussy. He's a crybaby. He's defending Taylor Lorenz, who is a hall monitor. We have a hall monitor and a crybaby considering themselves journalists. This is our reality now. Journalism has slipped so far away that some asshole like me can jump on a microphone and do a better job just sharing my opinions with people because this is the other, this is the other option. This is the other option. This is why Steven Crowder has 7 million YouTube subscribers. It's why Ben Shapiro is doing so well and they're making movies now. It's because these people are not to be trusted. And when Tucker Carlson speaks what most people are thinking, 
and gets the ratings to, to show that he's doing just that, these people are jealous, vindictive, and cowardice. And that is insane to see that. And the thing was, he, he, he acted like he was bringing some kind of revelation when really he was just manipulating people into thinking that somebody who doesn't agree with him is an evil person, which is the same thing they did with Trump. And that got us here. But they don't want to take any responsibility for what they did to give us Trump. MSNBC and CNN gifted us Donald Trump. It, is, it was their responsibility. In the same way that the Republicans and their inability to draft any kind of common sense gun law reform have given us H.R. 127 and terrible gun law le- legislation that's been presented by the Democrats. You see, when you don't take responsibility for your own side and making rational decisions and pandering to your base, people lose, they cheer for you at first, but eventually they lose respect for you and they don't trust you. And that is where CNN and MSNBC are now because it's been shown over and over again that they're fucking liars. And they're lying, calling out someone else for lying. And the big stories they just tend to miss right or side on the on the side of the most unpopular opinion but what their what their sources tell them to say and then they expect us to what to like trust them and be a part of be a part of 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 their media network why what have we what have they done to earn that it's entitlement it's arrogance and it's hypocrisy on a high scale and I wanted to point that out because we're going to see more and more of this now because Trump has left a vacuum and they need a villain. They tried it with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Eh, she's too dumb to really like make to, ma- to matter, right? She's not able to be taken seriously. But Tucker Carlson, on the other hand, who's doing better than any of them, any of them. And to be honest with you, because of the way they're acting, if Tucker Carlson did run in 2024, he would win because of things like this. I might vote for the motherfucker just because of p- things like this. And I'm a liberal. Of some kind, <laughs> not a neoliberal, but you know, a JFK liberal. Let's call it that. This isn't. This is. This is atrocious. What, what are we doing? <laughs> but that's the state of things. You know, that's that's where we're at, and it's infuriating, and it's frustrating, and it's really hard to find accurate, honest news. And you got to pay for it. You got to find Glenn Greenwald on Substack. Barry Weiss, who I just who I just subscribed to, Matt Taibbi. Right, you got to jump in there and find find real sources. And if you're listening to this show and you're politically homeless, I think you're probably just as frustrated as I am. But we've lost faith in the institutions, and that's why I'm here. And that's why we have the Patreon. That's why we do what we do. Is because it's hard to find somebody who's going to be honest. And maybe I cuss too much, and you don't agree with half the things I say. I get that. That's fine. But there's one thing that you could say I'm not, and that's disingenuous. Right? Like this is, this scares me more than any kind of, this scares me more than socialism. This scares me more than authoritarianism. Scares me more than Trump. is the fact that people drink this Kool-Aid. And it's literally the reason why I do this is because I just could not find an accurate representation. An honest view. Everybody has an axe to grind. Everybody has their bias. And that's fine. But they're dishonest about it. And that's something that we just can't have. That's something that we don't need to stand for as a nation, as individuals, in our own lives, or when it comes to our media. And now, because we live in an attention economy, 
we pay for things with our attention. And where does your attention go? It sure as fuck shouldn't go to these guys. And I don't really think it should go to Tucker Carlson either. But if I had to choose between Don Lemon and Cuomo and, and Stelter and Tucker Carlson, even as someone who's on the left, I choose Tucker Carlson. That's just where I'm at. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Elemental Labs, the creator, the creators of Element, your next favorite beverage option. Okay, here's the deal. You're not hydrated enough. You need electrolytes, you need a little bit of salt, and you need that, need that good flavor to make sure that your beverages that hydrate you are very palatable. I'm not talking about Coca-Cola. I'm not talking about fucking Gatorade. I'm talking about Element. Their stuff is the tits straight up. I drink this stuff every single day, but that's the thing. I care about myself. I care about my body. I care about uh, my health, my wellness. Those kind of things are very important to me. I like to work out a few times a week. I like to go on long hikes. I spend nights out in the forest doing self-reflection. And to do that, I need optimal hydration. And I get that with Element. Now, there's a premium exclusive deal just for our listeners, of course. If you go to drinkelement, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash wanders, which was the former name of the show, drinkelement.com slash wanders, you're going to get a variety pack of eight packets, and all you got to do is cover shipping, and that is $5. But I recommend you go ahead and pull trig on that lemon habanero flavor. It is the best, and you can mix it with a little bit of water and a splash of tequila, and you can have a good time and stay hydrated while you do it. Because when you're talking about keto flu or anything from going to, if you're going over to carnivore, like that lag in energy, a lot of that is due to lack of electrolytes, as well as hangovers are due to dehydration oftentimes. We don't think about those things. We don't put that stuff in our mind. But if you want to have a nice beverage and be a responsible adult, get yourself the lemon habanero, mix it with a little tequila, a little splash of water, you're good to go. Don't drink too many, of course, and don't drive while you're drinking. That is a disclaimer from me, not Element. And this is a recommendation from me, not Element. So, drinkelement.com. Slash Wanders, link is in the show notes. You're going to get your eight-pack variety pack for $5 just covering shipping, but I recommend you tag on that lemon habanero and maybe try the chocolate if you got a sweet tooth because Element is so good at curving cravings. Literally the best thing you can do for yourself. If there's only one thing that you do for yourself this year, make it Element. Do it. You'll feel better. DrinkElement.com slash Wanders. Stay moist. So the internet has spoken and people want to hear me talk about this Chris Harrison bachelor bachelorette situation. Um, this scenario kind of hits close to home um, and we're going to get into exactly why, but let's see what good morning America has to say about the whole thing. We'll just kind of break it down from there. Host Chris Harrison stepping away from the franchise after nearly 20 years after defending past racist actions. Okay, past racist actions. It's questionable as to the racistness of those actions. So I would think it's really unfair and kind of short-sighted uh, to call them racist actions and paint this woman as a racist when there's actually quite a bit of evidence to prove that that is not true. 
actions of this season's frontrunner. This morning, we are hearing from former Bachelorette Rachel Lindsay for the first time since Harrison's announcement, and TJ Holmes is here with all of that. Good morning, TJ. Hey, good morning to you all. And look, this is a franchise that has long since dealt with issues of race, but also some flat-out accusations of racism and racial discrimination on the show. So now they have controversy on top of controversy. You have a, a one contestant who is under fire for some possible past racist behavior. And the host now under fire for seeming to come to her defense of that behavior. Longtime Bachelor host Chris Harrison, the most shocking finale in Bachelor history. Oh, this is Chris your last tonight. Is stepping aside. There's not going to be a cocktail party tonight. For now, and says he's deeply remorseful after strong criticism for defending one of this season's frontrunners, Rachel Kirkinell. Already like completely falling in love with you. Kirkinell became the center of controversy after pictures of her attending a plantation-themed college party three years ago surfaced. Also coming to light, she's shared QAnon conspiracy theories and liked a photo with a Confederate flag. Harrison, who has been the host of the radio... Let's just do this real quick. We're going to get into the Confederate flag thing in a minute, but QAnon conspiracy theories can mean a lot of things, right? That can mean... Like, uh, you don't want to take a vaccine. Well, you're QAnon now. Um, uh, you think there's a deep state. QAnon. QAnon is, is you got to say what she said, right? Because if she said that there were lizard people running the government and that Hillary Clinton was in Gitmo, well, yeah, you could be like, that's pretty crazy. But just because QAnon says it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong on the face. Um, QAnon, about 95% of the shit that QAnon says is absolute nonsense, but you can't just say she's a QAnoner because she said some vague thing. Like, give me some specifics. What did she say? Interesting. Who knows? Juggernaut since its debut season in 2002 angered many by coming to Kirkinell's defense during an interview last week with Rachel Lindsay, the show's first black bachelorette. Well, Rachel, is it a good look in 2018 or is it not a good look in 2021? It's because not a, a big good difference. look ever because she's celebrating well, the old South. She's so if I went to that party, what would I represent I, at that party? My guess, these girls got dressed up and went to a party and had a great time. They were 18 years old. Now, does that make it okay? I don't know, Rachel, you tell me, but where is this lens we're holding up and was that lens available and were we all looking through it in 2018? On Saturday, Harrison issued a second apology and announced he's stepping aside for a period of time, writing, by excusing historical racism, I defended it. I am ashamed over how uninformed I was. I was so wrong. The former bachelorette speaking out overnight to GMA. I'm happy that Chris is taking the steps that he needs to take educate himself. to realize the gravity of the situation educate himself? at hand. I think that... This is the right move. It was never my intention to see someone have to step aside from a position that they've held for 18 years. But as I was sitting there in that moment, it was my intention to say that this is an interview that needs to be seen. Kirkonell is also asking for forgiveness, writing, I was ignorant, but my ignorance was racist. <laughs> now, current and former leads standing by Lindsay, like Matt James, the current and first black bachelor, and Tasha Adams, the second black bachelorette. My jaw was kind of to the floor just because it was an ongoing conversation that was just filled with so much defense. Dozens of cast members from the most recent Bachelor and Bachelorette seasons, including 25 women from the current season, issued a joint statement writing, just because she's speaking the loudest doesn't mean she is alone. Well, I was actually really moved to tears by it. It was unexpected. You're seeing people say, no, I don't want to be a part of that if this is what it's going to continue to be. 
You guys have to remember, you will see Chris Harrison the rest of the season. Remember these tape early, so he's already a part of that, but he's stepping aside. He's not going to do that live event they usually do right after that final broadcast. How long after that, we don't know. And keep in mind, the show's been around 20 years. Before last summer, there'd only been one black lead, and that was Rachel Lindsay. So those questions of diversity and trying to make it more diverse have been around for quite some time. Yeah. Thank so, you, TJ. You got All right, so let's let's just get into this. This is This is interesting. So there's a lot here and we got to put these things in context and context matters. What these women went to and what was going on in this plantation themed uh, formal was called old South. Old South is the formal um, for the fraternity Kappa alpha order. Uh, I just so happened uh, to be a KA. This is me right, right there in the middle. There's my name. Oh, oh sorry. I don't want to, don't want to put anybody else on blast there. Um, but yeah, so I'm pretty familiar with Old South and the rules of uh, KA. So let's just put it through my context as somebody who was pretty opposed to racism even at this time. Um, you don't really think about what's going on at the time. It just seems like a big party. And I wouldn't accuse everybody who's been to an Old South ever of being racist. That being said, Old South in um, in Southern like SEC schools is a little bit more intense than what we did with our Old South back in the day. I look back at some of the chants that we had and some of the things that we did, and I'm like, ooh, that that's like it's kind of cringeworthy, to be honest with you. I'm gonna be real with you. That it's kind of like, oh, that was probably not like the move. You just don't think about it. Is that a product of unconscious bias? Yeah, sure. Okay. I'll accept that. That being said, these girls that went to the old South party, um, they dress in like these old formal, like gown type things. And it's this whole thing. And a lot of times they were done at plantations. And if you want to look at the other side of that, a lot of the guys that are at that event, the fraternity brothers, um, are wearing a Confederate uniforms. And the reason is, and this is, I know, you're cringing a little bit here too. The reason is, is that Robert E. Lee is the spiritual founder of Kappa Alpha, Kappa Alpha Order. So Robert E. Lee being the spiritual founder, uh, roots deep in the South, you know, well over 100 years old, that whole thing. Not a good look. The Confederate flag thing. So this, the, the house that we were in front of in that picture that I just showed you, um, Right before I was initiated, so that picture was with my pledge class, but we were, right before I was initiated, the KAs did away with any representations of the Confederate flag in the house. So that was probably about 2006. They got rid of, hey, like, we are putting our foot down with, like, no Confederate flags anywhere. Um, so if that KA house that they were at, and they were probably, like, KA girls, right? They may have been Zetas, and they just, like, happened to hang out with KAs all the time. That's kind of how it happens. You have, like, Greek organizations that kind of pair up. And... Um, that that Confederate flag should not have been in that house, right? If that was a KA house. And her liking the photo doesn't really tell me much, right? Her friend posts a photo on Facebook. And of course, this is three years ago. So just keep in mind, this girl was in college three years ago. She was going to formals for a fraternity three years ago. She's still basically a child, right? And they get people like these for these shows because they're not emotionally mature and they cause drama and they get all butthurt. It's a whole thing. It's part of the appeal of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. So when we look at this whole thing, it's really a stretch to call the girl racist. It is really a stretch. And then the loop in the QAnon thing, which I don't know what she said, and I, I admittedly don't want to dig too deep into this, 
But I also agree with Chris Harrison that's like, hey, this was, you know, a few years ago. She went to a formal. She wasn't thinking about it. Was it a product of white privilege? Probably. So are most, like, I don't trust fund kids who get fucking jobs for nothing, right? There's there's bigger problems out there than some girl who went to Old South being on a reality show. And Chris saying that, I wish he wouldn't have apologized, right? You're fine. You're financially set. Like, don't apologize, Chris Harrison. Come on. Like, what he was saying, that was a good, that seemed like a conversation that was happening in good faith, right? So I feel like he was having that conversation with that, with the bachelorette or the former bachelorette and, you know, trying to attack some girl who's 22 or something like that, like going out and going to a formal in college isn't really fair. And then accusing her of what is now the worst accusation you can be labeled with in 2021, calling her a racist because she went to Old South, not really fair. And I don't think that many people, when they have a crush on a guy or they like some guy and he asked her to go to an event, I don't really feel like that's 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 one of those things that you can be like, oh, that's, that's a product of your racism. And I will say that at our Old South, right, and I, w- I went to Texas State University, KAs don't exist there anymore, so there's nothing really to be done about that. But in our Old South, we didn't do the Confederate uniforms. Now, there were a handful of guys that did. I thought that was obnoxious and silly, and I was not going to take part in that. Uh, it was optional, but no one did it. Uh, we went to New Orleans. We went to South Padre. We went to like different places. We didn't get a uh, plantation house and do that whole thing. But a lot of places that have really old chapters did those kind of things, and that is really insensitive. And completely obnoxious. And there were a lot of racist things that I heard in my fraternity life. I understand all of that. And this isn't this this isn't me trying to excuse that by any stretch of the imagination. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But what I am saying is that it's not the girl's fault. Right? If she likes her friend's post on Facebook and doesn't really notice the Confederate flag or doesn't really care, it's not like she was liking the Confederate flag. It's not like the Confederate flag was her profile picture on Facebook. It's not like this girl is a white supremacist. She's supposedly in love with the guy who's in the, on The Bachelor who is a black guy. You know what I'm saying? Like, If, she, if she's that racist, she's not going to live in a house that's, that's half full of black people. Like, That's not something that a racist would do. So... There's so much conflicting evidence here, and Chris Harrison saying, like, hey, maybe it's not worth canceling the chick over her going to a college formal when she's 18, 19 years old and expecting her to make good decisions. How about we don't expect 18 or 19-year-olds to make good decisions, right? Whether that's a 14-year-old trying to decide their own gender or or an 18-year-old going to a formal because somebody asked her to, and she doesn't know the history of the fraternity. She doesn't know that Robert E. Lee is a key figure in the K.A. Uh, frat. Like, why would she need to know any of that? She gets a cool dress. She goes to a party. She gets drunk. She has whatever. She makes some bad decisions, and she goes on with her life, and then now she's on The Bachelor, right? And a front runner for the first black Bachelor. So in, instead of making this a thing where it's like, hey, we shouldn't be that surprised to have a black Bachelor or a black Bachelorette or a black winner of The Bachelorette, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, and they should have had – I've been saying this for a long time. I don't really watch the show, but I'm like, why are they all white? Uh, that's a little bit weird to me, but – when we look at this whole thing, it really doesn't seem like what this girl is going through is really deserved based on her actions. And that's kind of frustrating to me. That being said, I really don't give a shit about The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. This is kind of a symptom of a bigger problem. And 
this girl's just going to Old South. I mean, come on. You're saying that any girl that went to any of the Old Souths, all of my Old South dates when I was in college are racist and don't deserve to be able to be on a reality TV show. That requires very little to no talent. Like, what are we doing here? Is this person a political figure? Is she, like, going to be substantial? She's a flash in the pan. She might make it to Paradise Island or whatever the fuck it's called. Right? Like, I don't know. Like, that's, her, that's, that's where she's at. That is, that is her position in the world. And they, they recruit emotionally immature people for these shows. So to expect them to not have made mistakes in their past, especially in college. Like, what if everything we all did in college got put on blast? Like, what if everything we did, said, thought in college got put on blast? We'd all be fucked. We would all be fucked. So we got to take this with a grain of salt here. Like, Chris Harrison, I wish you wouldn't have apologized. And that apology was definitely crafted by the ABC PR firm or whatever. He was in the right. This is you're you're trying to find something that's not there. You're just trying to find something that is not there. Now I'm sure that Ka is falling out of favor everywhere just due to the Robert E. Lee thing, and maybe they've done some PR moves lately to try and change that. Good on them. Again, don't care that much. It was an interesting part of my life. Um, but when we look at this whole thing, and I've said when we look at this whole thing like 14 times, I understand. But I'm trying to look at the whole thing. Making this girl out to be a racist is very damaging for her life. It's going to be very hard. Be like her Instead of just being that girl that was on The Bachelor, now she's that racist girl that was on The Bachelor. And that just does not seem okay to me based on her actions. If she had said some explicitly, explicitly racist things and you could say there is ev- clear and present evidence of her racism, then yeah, maybe she can be the racist, racist chick from The Bachelor. But unless you have that, even even saying that she's racist is really unfair and, and can really damage the girl's life. And he, we can debate on whether she was actually going anywhere anyways, but this is rough. This is not fair. And I wish Chris would have stood up a little bit more for himself, but that is what it is. That's kind of par for the course these days. Anyways, <laughs> let's do something else. It's time to get into that part of the show where I give you something to think about. Something to think about. I wanted to, since we're talking about things that are near and dear to my heart, I wanted to talk about Austin. So I lived in Austin for about 10 years. I've been visiting Austin since I was a kid, just a small little guy, going there for state basketball tournaments when my aunts were playing and and going to visit and just being around it, watching the bats, being in Austin. It was the first place I saw two men kiss, and I was like, wow, you can do anything down here. This is crazy. This is the Wild West. And I moved there eventually, and again, spent 10 years there after college, right where I went to school at Texas State. It was about 30 minutes south of Austin. And I recently went back. And I have some people, there's some friends of mine in Austin that I just that is, I just love to death. Like, I just love so many people there. But with that being said, now it seems like, and you're hearing this all over the place, Austin is the new L.A. Austin is the new L.A. Austin's the new San Francisco. Austin's the new Tech Hub. Elon Musk. Get Joe Rogan. There's going to be comedy there. And I got to thinking about this, and I was actually listening to Tim Dillon, and which was really well-timed because I've been like running this through my head, and Kelly and I have been talking about this a lot, is 
is that a good thing? Because <laughs> right now, I mean, like, how did that work out for San Francisco? How did that work out for L.A.? And is, is Texas going to make it better? Right? Like, how conservative can someone be now running as a, for governor of Texas? Like, that state's turning blue real quick. And that may be good. I think Texas will be fine. But it's like you move all these people in here who have different beliefs, and you start to get maybe a state income tax at 1%, and then 2%, and then 3 and it starts to creep up. Before you know it, all the rich people in Austin are living in Westlake and outside of town, and downtown Austin turns into something like downtown San Francisco, where people are shitting on the streets and living in tents. They have the climate for it there. Makes sense, right? So when we think about these towns being the next what, it's the next whatever. <laughs> it's like, why? Why? Why can't it just be what it is? Because now when I go there, I see a bunch of influencers from L.A. buying $2 million houses, taking selfie videos all the time, and networking, and hustling, and grinding. And it's this was the... Pl- it hurts me. It hurts me to see the influx of L.A. to Austin. And I don't want Austin to be the new L.A. And it's becoming that. And it was like this safe haven for me. It was this home for me. It was like the place that really changed my life and changed my perspective and opened me up to all of these things that I care about and talk on the show now. And it just seems like before too long, South Congress will be just like Venice. Venice. And South Lamar will be (laughs) just like Lincoln. Crowded, stinky, shitty air quality, trash everywhere. People driving like fucking assholes. One thing about Austin, even when there was traffic, people didn't really drive like assholes. There was a little bit of a considerate energy. Like we're all in this traffic together. Let's not make it worse than it has to be. That's not the case in LA. And that LA energy is going to attach to Texas and Austin specifically, like one of those STDs you just can't shake. It's like that. It's just giving Austin like the herp, the bad kind. And that is hard to see and hard to feel. And I just had to bring it up because it's something to think about. It's, do you really think that you can move California to Austin And not turn Austin into California. Do you really think that can happen? Austin, Houston, Waco, Dallas, doesn't matter where it's at. San Antonio. I liked that Texas was mostly conservative. And it balanced out in Austin, a very liberal city and a conservative state. That's kind of why I like Denver. I feel like Denver is Austin 10 years ago. And I hope it doesn't turn into Austin 10 years from now. At some point. But why do we need a new LA? Why do we need a new San Francisco? Why can't we spread it out? Spread it out. Go to Boise, Idaho. Go to Reno. Go to Michigan. Go to Detroit. Make Detroit the new LA. Be cold, but you can figure it out. We need to spread it out. These tech hubs, these tech centers... 
it just creates a situation in which you pay $1.9 million for a 750 square foot piece of shit downtown and you got to get three roommates to live in there. And down the stairs, you've got a guy living in a fucking tent. And I feel the homelessness problem is a bad, is a big deal. And it's a fucking problem. We got to do something about it. With all these innovators out here jerking each other off in the tech sector, maybe one of those assholes can figure out how to, help, how to solve this homelessness problem. But no, it's the next startup. It's a weird time. It's a weird time, but I really hope that Austin is not the new LA. And that's a personal thing for me. But again, it's just something to think about. Y'all, I appreciate I appreciate everything. And what you don't know is behind the scenes, this podcast is going to take a lot of editing because my dog has the shit. And he cried upstairs during every segment until I let him out. So in between each segment, there was me running upstairs and taking my dog outside. Fun facts from behind the scenes. If you enjoy this show, make sure to review it on Apple Podcasts and share it with some friends on social media. Really appreciate all those shares, y'all. They've been upticking lately, and I like it. And if you want to get more... Join the Politically Homeless Patreon. I love you guys. Keep your head on straight, and we will see you next time.